0: Oh man, oh man, Redemption Church, down at the Hob, there's a fence, there's a giant building eating machine, it's so cool. You guys are good, man, you're good, that's awesome. So I, I hope everybody comes down there today. I know that uh, our service ends like around 10, 40. We're not having the, the gathering till noon. But we always want to remember, we have people that come every Sunday, and they help set up, and they help tear down. And uh, we are very grateful for them. And we wanted to give enough bandwidth there for them to be able to do that job and still come down to the hub. And so encouraging everybody to be down there. What I want you also to know is we do a lot of things for the good of the city and one of the things that we can do that would be for the good of our most local neighbors today is uh, we don't park right in front of the sports bar or right in front of the Chinese restaurant or right in front of the gym or a mano's or whatever else but what is good is even though there's a fence you can get in from either side so you can pull into the gravel part of the property if you want and just kind of get a janky parking job over there we'll see how that all looks in the end or, you can park behind the sports bar and all of that down there in the lower portion behind. That would be great as well. But we hope everybody comes down today because this is pretty exciting. This has been years and years in the making, and it's not programmatic. We're just going to come together. We're going to just share a couple words, pray together. Anybody who wants to pray, we're going to have a microphone for anybody to do that. But it's just a time of reflection and thankfulness, and so it's going to be great. Hopefully, everybody makes it down there. That's the first thing. Second thing, I am wearing my spring shirt. I am wearing my spring Vans because I'm really really trying to get spring to show up, all right? This is my gravity pull for spring to come. We'll see if it happens. All right. Beyond that, we have an app. In the app, there are notes. If you want to follow along today, that would be fantastic. We have all kinds of stuff there, blanks to fill in, ideas to have, and also questions at the end, both for regroups or just anybody's personal reflection. But today is going to be a day that is going to be some fun and some heavy, all right? It's all going to be in there, because this is what John is giving us as a gift for our refinement and our betterment. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, settle our hearts, get ready for today. We're going to dive right in. So if you'd join me, I would love that. Jesus, uh, we come before you as a people who are frail, who are um, all too human, and yet we know that your presence resides in your kids, And I pray that as we go through this today, we are mobilized and inspired to lean into the love that you desire to reveal through us, uh, that we would be uh, repentant and, uh, in some ways, corrective to the areas where we know we haven't done this so well. But from that, we will be even more moved to highlight what it is that you have us to do in this world. And so we ask for your grace to really shine among us today. We ask for your love to shine through us to a world that desperately needs to see it. And so Jesus, we look to you, we thank you, and we love you. In your good and kind name, amen. So I was thinking about this week, going into it, and I was thinking about symbols, and I was thinking about the power of a symbol and how in one simple image, it is loaded with all sorts of background and thought and everything else, and so they communicate information rapidly. And so with that, I thought, hey, I'll give a little pop quiz, give a little test, and see how well we know some of our symbols in our world. And so I thought it would start easy, low-hanging fruit with this first symbol right here. What is this symbol? peace symbol right and when you think about the peace symbol you think probably like hippies and bell bottoms and woodstock and volkswagen bugs and all that kind of stuff right like you see the symbol and instantly you're like oh it snaps tie-dye into my vision or whatever else right that's how a symbol communicates a lot how about this next one right here yeah y'all know it the swoosh right maybe that was your first pair of shoes or the first pair you wanted but your mom got you those blue and yellow shoes at the very bottom of the rack at the sifeway back in the day like i got my first tennis shoes at grocery stores do you remember this and they're always blue and yellow and just janky looking colors but hey it was fun right so but we think like Michael Jordan and sports and all that just in a single symbol how about this third symbol male and female right and that one makes us a little nervous too We're like oh I see news stories and there's all kinds of debates about male and female in our culture but you know the symbol and you know what it communicates but there's a lot loaded into that now here's a tougher one what's this next symbol you guys all live in Washington state, all right. Blue, big container, we love recycling because we can dump everything in there, right? So, but we get it, right? Like that's a that's an important symbol in our culture and has a lot of, of imagery loaded into that single image. Now this one, even tougher. USB, all oh my computer nerds, all right, so. And I was looking at this one going, I don't know why it has a circle and a square and a triangle. I bet there's meaning behind all of that. I just know that I always put it in upside down and have to flip it every time, right? Which is why I like the newer, smaller USB-C ports. All right, so here's here's a tough one. Prince, yes! The artist formerly known as Prince who renamed himself to a picture that I can't pronounce. Very difficult, right? But some of you, you're so pop culture oriented, you know this stuff, right? So symbols are powerful. And when it comes to the Christian tradition, our heritage, and our history, we know that symbols are so profound, we've had many. In fact, here is a collage of some of the symbols that we use. And as soon as people see these, they know that there's a message embedded into there, whether it's like scripture or Jesus or the fish and loaves, as far as what he, when he fed 5,000, or we see a chalice and bread and we think communion. And all of that has this rich, deep communication to reveal. And as I was thinking about all the symbols that Christianity has, I was like, which symbol is the most important for us as a people to reveal to our world. If we were to give symbolically anything, to communicate much with little, what would be the symbol that we would want to really embody? And I thought about it, and I thought, it is the symbol of love. It is the essence of love that we want to embody, to capture, and to communicate to our world. Will there be love of each other? Love of our neighbor? And I think most profoundly, love of enemy. I think that's an otherworldly thing. I think that's really what makes Christianity's love unique is that like we need to lean in to love a neighbor because God loved his enemy by sending his son because we were enemies of God, Paul says. And in love, he reached out to his enemies to rescue his enemies and make them friends. And so to me... The most powerful symbol that we want to embody is love for our world and love in our world. And this is very much John's theme, right? We have now spent a couple of months in John's first letter, this blog that he kind of revealed to all sorts of different Christians during his era. And in 1 John, there are three major sections where he highlights the importance of this love thing. And so today we're in the second of his three declarations regarding love and how we are to embody this thing that Jesus has shown to us. And as he does it today, he's going to tell us both about the profound power that is revealed when we love well, and also he's going to talk about the destructive force when we do not love well. And he's going to do it in very extreme ways. So, if you are not necessarily using our app for the notes, but you want to open your Bibles or tap to your Bible app, we're starting in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. And here he sets the stage for the second half of his letter. He says in verse 11, This is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, what's interesting, when we look at John's literature, uh, he's used this phrase before, what you heard from the beginning, the message from the beginning. He did it at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1. And there he's like, this is what you've heard from the beginning. God is light, a very definitive thing. And from this reality that God is light, from God's light comes God's life unto our lives. Because light, like sunlight, produces life for the world. And in the same way, God's light in our life produces life. But as he goes into the second half, he puts it now on what we are to do in light of God's light. We are to show love. Or at least what he says is, we should love one another. And I think that's interesting. Because the first time when he speaks of God, it's just solid. This is who he is. But here now it's what we should do. And should is an interesting word, right? Because there's things we know we should do. We should exercise. We should eat better. We should save. We should take some time to rest. Matt should be nicer about cats. So many shoulds, right? What a should is, is a fork in the road, right? I should do this, but I might do that. And, And so John strategically places this word before us Because we know we face these forks in the road of what we should do And so in light of this, he's going to go very hyperbole again We've talked about this with John He's very kind of black and white, good, bad, evil, righteous Like he loves to go to these extremes And if we jump back to verse 10, that kind of built into verse 11 We see he's very much in the kind of rhetoric, hyperbole, extreme world When he says, this is how we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Very extreme. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Right, so again, this is John's jam, right? If you're not pillar, you're post. That's how he loves to speak. But I'm firmly convinced because he does it so often, he's doing it so that we think about the nuances of the extremes. Just as Jesus used extremes to get us to think about the deeper nuance and to contemplate a thing, I think John is really using the tool in a similar fashion. But if we take the extremes for a minute and then we kind of build it out to more of the nuance, what we're getting at is there seems to be two ideas around love. There is either diabolical lovelessness or there's divine love, right? That's kind of the extremes. But as I was saying, these extremes kind of operate on a gradient, So diabolical love, we'd put it on the absolute red end of the spectrum. And then we might take divine love and put it on the absolute green. But in between all of that is this range. And we're all going to grow in that range. Like if we're a new Christian, we might start out with a kind of a young or juvenile form of understanding love because we're coming from one understanding of it into a new one. And then we grow and mature over the course of time and we get better at that. But there's still the extreme ends. And so, on the extreme end of God's profound divine love, we even think about the cross. We think about Jesus, the ultimate example of love, right? That when we were hostile, hateful, unwanting, here he is on the cross saying, God, forgive my haters. They don't know what they're doing. I'm doing this in love, even though they hate me. It's profound. That is the ultimate extreme kind of display of divine love. On the opposite end, when it comes to diabolical lovelessness, just your average house cat is kind of that embodiment, what Matt should do versus what Matt does do. All right, so, I know, I'm an evil person sometimes when it comes to cats, but that's yeah, so we get the extremes, right? But there is nuance there in the middle, right? There is And so we dig into it more because some people may say, dude, I'm not loveless. I may not be as divine loving as God, but I'm not loveless and go, right, because there is movement on each side of these things. In fact, under lovelessness, there is a number of synonyms, things like hatred, contempt, disdain, hate, loathing, abhorrence, malice, malevolence, jealousy. I mean, there's a whole list of synonyms that can fall into this so when we think about lovelessness today and john's kind of extreme language be realizing that no there's all sorts of other words that fall underneath there and while we may not feel like we're loveless we may struggle with some of these things and on the flip there are a lot of words for love respect esteem tolerance regard favor to appreciate prize like adore all sorts of things And so all of that comes into play. And what was interesting this week for me as I was looking at these synonyms, I was surprised by the fact that there are many more synonyms for lovelessness than there are for love. And as I thought about that, I just kind of thought like, man, that may be something about our nature, right? That as a species, as a people, we may tend to be a little bit more adept at hate in all of its forms than maybe we are at love in all of its forms, right? Kind of the hues of love get lost sometimes in the shades of hate. And I think John knows this, and so he starts into that negative space first. He talks about the problem of lovelessness, and then he moves into how we're meant to love. And so I want to kind of look at that this morning by looking at the first thing in your notes, which are the layers of loveless living. The layers of loveless living. And as much as there's this diabolical thing, it plays out in maybe kind of subtle different forms. The first is what I'm going to call the uh, murderous spirit. Right? That John's going to launch right into that like sometimes the way we're loveless is we just have kind of a murderous heart and to highlight this he turns to kind of the kingpin killer number 1. He turns to a dude named Cain. He goes way back into Genesis. He says we really need to love if we're born to God, we love if we're born to the devil we don't love. And therefore we must not be like Cain. And he's talking to Christians here. We must not be like Cain. So he's letting us know we can fall victim to this. We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil, and his brother had been doing what is righteous. It's interesting here, really quick as a sidebar, that word kill, or killed in Greek, is actually the word slaughtered. He slaughtered his brother. And we get these images of how that happened, and many people go, it's a rock. Cain used a rock to kill his brother. There's no rock in the story, and the wording probably is more like he used a knife and he slaughtered his brother, much like an animal sacrifice, right? So there's all kinds of pent-up stuff in there, and we might look at that and say, you know what, though? I'm not gonna pull a cane with anybody. I am not looking for a first-degree murder charge. I got too much to live for, family, spouse, everything else. Why why would I do that? I go, right, we probably aren't going to be murderers, But we are all susceptible to the traits and characteristics that lead to those kind of ultimate decisions. And while we may not kill a friend, kill a loved one, what we have been known to do as people is what? Kill off a relationship, right? Treat a person as dead to us. Uh, that, That can happen, right? So it's not physical, but it's emotional. It's relational, And if we go back and look at the story of Cain, you see both the warning and solution built into the whole fabric of how we face this. So most of us probably know the story, but Abel brings a sacrifice to God, and God's like, I approve of that sacrifice. Cain brings his, and God's like, no, for whatever reason that we don't know, he doesn't approve of it. And so Cain's very angry at his brother Abel. And so God says, why are you so angry Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin, he says, is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it, and you must master it. See, I appreciate the warning there, because I I think about it in our own lives, where something happens, and somebody does something to us, and from that we feel anger, and we feel dejected. And in that moment, then we have a decision, just like Cain had a decision. Am I going to do what is right, or am I going, going to do what is retaliatory? You've hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you, or am I going to do something different than that? So we all face the fork in the road, especially when somebody hurts us, frustrates us, angers us, insults us, irritates us in some way, right? It's all there. Because when that happens, that, that, that desire, that sin of wanting to slander, gossip, fight, lash out, assassinate their character in some way. It's right there. Like it says, it's creeping at the door of our heart and our soul and our perspectives. Right? And so are we going to retaliate? Are we going to have revenge control us? Are we going to get control of that impulse that we feel? Because here's what I know from experience. When I get hurt by somebody, and the closer they are to me, the more hurt I feel. When I get hurt by somebody, what's my first response? I want you to feel the hurt that you've hurt me with. That's what wells up inside. That's the first trigger that we can all wrestle with. Cain went all the way with it. We may not go all the way with it, but we may do other things that are in the same spirit of the murderous spirit. And this is why... We need to take the advice that God gave Cain. You must master and subdue that urge, right? When your spouse says something that hurts you, instead of being like, oh yeah, well then let me say something and now we're gonna get embroiled in a big old argument, you hold it back, right? That would be controlling and subduing versus unleashing and just rushing into folly, you know? Or with somebody at work or a neighbor, whatever. Like, it doesn't matter. It's just realizing that, man, I must master this thing before it masters me true love is going to do that, but the lack of love will not. And what's amazing when you read through the New Testament is if God's life lives in us, God's light lives in us, as John has been saying, then his love will come through us. And so we have the, the capacity in the Holy Spirit and in God's power to hold this stuff back through him, but we need to rely on him to do that. And boy, sometimes that decision is hard, right? It's hard, but it's it's the evidence of the life of God in us. In fact, John says in verse 14, if we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. So loving, even when somebody does something unloving to you, that shows there's real God life in you. But a person who has no love is still dead. I mean, there's a strong words from our man here, right? But they make us pause. That's not the only spirit of lovelessness There is a second layer in all of this Probably uh, less sinister But still, according to John, diabolical And that's a hateful spirit A hateful spirit He talks about in verse 13 He says, don't be surprised Your brothers and sisters If the world hates you Like, that's a thing that the world does right? Like, Jesus talked about this right? Point blank, he's like, you want to follow me? The world's going to hate you I'm always surprised when Christians get angry That the world hates them how dare they're persecuting us the liberals the left media hollywood i'm like we all signed up for this man like he told us they're gonna not like you and when they don't like you you know what you get to do you get to love them anyway like no we're gonna gripe about them and complain and boycott them in some way and i said no i called you to love them so we shouldn't be surprised if the world hates us paul says hey that's just the tapestry of how the world works the world is really good at hate Now, in that, let's be honest, sometimes what the world's good at is they love their own and then they hate those who are not their own. That's true, right? And that happens in all sorts of contexts where it's like, my tribe is cool, but if you're opposite of my tribe, you're bad. But that happens in all sorts of ways. Just turn on the news, right? The tribe of the the right hates the tribe of the left, and the tribe of the left hates the tribe of the right. Conservatives hate liberals, and liberals hate conservatives, MSNBC hates Fox News, Fox News hates MSNBC They do news on each other's story network stuff I'm like, MSNBC, why do you care about what Fox News is doing? Vice, why do you care? But there's this deeper, like, animosity Now sometimes they even hate within their own camp Strangest thing, I was watching the NRA conference stuff And Mike Pence got booed at this nra convention you know and here's this guy i have people that are close to me that are friends with mike pence and they're like this guy is legit he loves jesus first and foremost above anything else and there's this group of people that come together and many of them would claim to be christians booing a fellow christian like the very opposite of love right so strange to me so there's all these conflicts All this division. And division is easy. Division sells. Division gets followers. Lovelessness is so easy to spin up and maintain. Right? But it's so hateful. And John warns anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know, the murderers don't have eternal life living in them again, it should cause us to pause. How many times do I sound hateful, hurtful, angry at, in particular here, fellow Christian, but just in general to the world around me, right? Because these are serious things in John's equation. They are opposite of God. Diabolical, not divine. But then there's the third layer. And this one, I confess, this is a tough one for me, which is the indifferent spirit the indifferent spirit is verse 17 he says if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion how can god's love be in that person his friend james says something similar he's like if you've been touched by the free gift of god's grace you've been enriched by his love then how can you look at somebody else and not show that grace because people who have been moved by grace should move in grace. People who have been touched by divine love should want to reveal that love in divine ways to the world around them. In fact, if anything, for John, the real proof that someone has union with God is not what they claim or defend or espouse or profess, because that's easy. That's easy to raise a hand and say, I'm in the club. But, but, but what's really challenging is to pour forth authentic expressions of otherworldly affection. That's very, very difficult. That is a challenge. But that is what we need to be and what we need to embody. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's sacrificial. But it's also incredibly beautiful. And it's life-shaping and world-transforming. And John knows this, and so John begins to push this. So he warns, hey, here's the layers of lovelessness. Which means we need to really begin to master the layers of love-fueled living. Which is the second thing in your notes. The layers of love-fueled living, all right? Because divine love is the ultimate standard, right? It is. It's the pinnacle thing. But as I shared earlier, it's also on a spectrum for us. And we're learning, or we're growing in our humanness to learn to rely more more on God's love in us, to surrender more to God's love in us, to kind of go to war with our own worst impulses, and again, submit to God's best impulses in us. All of that is going to be in the equation and in the mix, and so we want to realize that. And so we want to get really, really awesome at this as best as we can. And when I think about love, I think there are equally layers. Just as there are layers in lovelessness, there's layers in love. The first, the easiest, is the layer of affection. Just good old fashioned affection. Here's what I love about affection. Uh, You don't have to work at it. It's a biological chemical reaction that happens in you apart from any will or decision making on your part. So you might see attraction as this idea of just affectionate love that pops out, right? or it's something that just so moves you, it's like your subconscious just decides to shove to the forefront of your consciousness, you're gonna feel this way right now. You didn't plan it, it just happens. I watched this with my three-year-old granddaughter, we'll be like playing with toys on the floor or whatever else, and suddenly out of nowhere, she'll stop and she'll grab me by the cheeks and she'll like be, Appa, Appa, I love you so much. And then she'll just give me a kiss right? And I know that wasn't planned. It's just suddenly she's playing and she looks at her op and she's like, I just feel a thing, right? And she does it. That's that thing that's just that first layer of love. And you experience that when you see somebody in need and you don't even plan it. You're like, we just got to help that person. We just got to engage that thing. You feel empathy. You see a story and instantly it just moves you. That's that first layer. And that's an awesome layer That layer gets us in trouble sometimes, but it also blesses the world sometimes if we have mastery and control over that so we don't just submit to every impulse, but the right impulses of love. It's a beautiful layer. But then there's a second layer, a deeper layer, and that is attitude. The attitude of love is a little bit more like this this approach that we're going to have on the topic. And I see this a lot when I do weddings. Right? So when people go into their wedding day, they have this, this attitude that they're bringing that says, you know what, I'm gonna make a vow today. And the, the general thrust of my relationship to this person will be love. And my attitude in love is going to be, I'm gonna honor them when life is good or life is bad. I'm gonna care for them when we're rich or when we're poor. I, I'm going to, to care and, and, and invest, even if they're sick or in health. And this is a good attitude to have When you go into marriage But here's the thing about an attitude It will eventually be tested And those vows There's going to be hard and painful days And then you have to lean into the third layer of love Which is action And the action of love is saying You know what, I'm going to do the next right thing Not because I feel like it But because I've pledged myself to it I'm committed to this idea of love. I'm loyal to this idea of love. And I find in our own Christian walk, we sometimes have to really lean into this layer, right? Like like between myself and God, there are times where I'm tempted to do a wrong thing. And it's in that moment I have to decide, I love God more than I love this temptation before me. Or there may be a time where somebody shows you some romantic affection and you go, you know what, I love God and my spouse more than I live the attention of this affection that is coming my direction. And so I'm gonna choose the hard thing and love my God and love my neighbor and love my spouse more than I love this other person that I probably should have this relationship with. Or when I'm tempted to lie, to get out of trouble. No, I love God and this person I would lie to more than telling the lie to get myself out of trouble. So all of that is that action-oriented love. And it goes back to, I'm gonna choose the next right thing, not the expedient thing, the self-protecting thing, the self-gratifying thing, no, the truly loving thing. All of this distills down, in my opinion, to the ultimate, deepest concept of love for the Christian, which is love as an axiom. Axiom is a Latin word, which means fundamental proposition or a base principle And for us as followers of Jesus, knowing that God is love, right? This is the the, the very essence of his being For us, what it means when it comes to love is that doing love, acting in love, fulfilling love Is more than just moral, commandment, obedience stuff Uh, In in fact, if anything, I kind of see love as like a law of nature, it's as indelible and immovable as gravity or quantum entanglement for all of you science nerds out there. Like whatever it is, like it's so, so stout, so anchored that we go, this is what we live or die for. It is the biggest idea of the scriptures, which means doing love is more than just nice or good or kind. No, it's God is love, God is in you, and God in you wants to love the people around you, and therefore we love because of this very dynamic, right? That's why we do it. Not just out of obedience, but because there is this compelling influence that dwells within us because God dwells within us, Christ dwells within us, the Spirit dwells within us, and He longs to fulfill this through us to the world around us. Now again, I'm not claiming that it's easy or simple convenient, but it's necessary. It's to be the thing that primarily motivates us, and it's to be the thing that we seek to grow in and get better at. And the reason is because of verse 16. We know what real love is. Like, there are a lot of people that go, man, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't follow him, whatever else. So they may not know what real love is, but we know what real love is. Because Jesus gave his life for us. And so we ought, there's like the should word, we ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's the ultimate way we love. We go, it's, it's you before me. I look up for your needs and consider your needs more than I consider my own. That's the totality of love. Therefore, he says in verse 18, Dear children, Let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will either show that we belong to the truth so we will be confident when we stand before God. See, it's easy to say stuff, but boy, it's tough to show stuff. But but when I think about that, I go, man, that's the real proof that we believe this. Right? The real proof that we believe Jesus and what he said and what he did is we lean into doing this thing called love divine-oriented, Holy Spirit-driven love. And this is where I'll just be straight with you. I have wrestled with this one for a long time. I mean, for years, right? And I don't mean wrestled like against it, wrestled in the sense of, it, I had to reorient my bearings, right? And, 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 and so what I've concluded is the most authentic proof of my faith, the most authentic proof of my belief is that I'm gonna do this really, really, really hard thing and I'm gonna work hard to prove to the world, to prove to the church, to prove to my family and friends that I, I, that I take this so seriously, I, I'm gonna love you when it's really, really painful to do sometimes. Because I think that is the fullest expression, expression of love. I think that's true fidelity. Now, I didn't always used to think that. Just in a moment of transparency, I'll have a couple of those here as we move forward. Um, But I used to think that loyalty to doctrine and conviction about dogma was the way I proved I was most faithful. Now, so nobody walks out of here and says, Matt doesn't like doctrine and dogma. No, Matt loves doctrine and dogma. I do. But what I found was it's a whole lot easier to sound feisty and fighty about those things and to say that's how it's proof that I'm loyal as opposed to what's really, really hard is to say, or I'm going to lean into loving, really unlovely people, loving people who don't like me, and and, 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 and say that's the real test of my fidelity. That, that's the real authentic display that I take this seriously. And this is why, then, if you listen to any of my teaching for any length of time, I get all excited about the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain and the Fruit of the Spirit and the Definition of Love in 1 Corinthians 13. I get excited about those sections because it's not like they're the only sections in the Bible, but I go, they're the clearest encapsulations to me of how I can go do love, right? So it's like, here's the commands and the ideas and the spirit in which I do this thing. And so my attitude is almost like, if I can master that, I'm ready to move on to the next things. But I really got to master those. And, and I don't. So I'm always looking back at them and how do I do this? How do I love effectively? And I'm not pushing this idea of love because this is Matt's big idea. I'm pushing this idea of love because Paul actually says it is the most important thing. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse one. He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I could understand all of God's secret plans and possess all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would gain nothing. I look at that list and go, okay, so what's more important than supernatural utterance, perfect theological knowledge, absolute faith-empowering displays, total philanthropic donation, and the ultimate sacrifice of giving one's life. He says, if I did all of that, but if I didn't have love, it's nothing. That should get our attention. Because so often, all that stuff he listed, we would maybe even value at times more than love. He goes, no. And then he grounds love for us. It says, here's what love is. Everyday displays of this axiom of God's essence. He says, Love is patient and kind. It is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. It never gives up, never loses faith. It is always hopeful, and it endures through every circumstance. He goes into verse 13. He says, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And I think about that. Like, Jesus tells us point blank, the greatest command, love God and love your neighbor, right? Paul says, hey, if you love your neighbor, you do the whole law, right? Right? Jesus is at the end on the final exam. The real question is, did you love well? Did you love me when I was poor, when I was naked, when I was imprisoned? When I was the least of these, did you love me well? Because that's what he's measuring, really, in the end. It is the single greatest thing that Paul says endures forever. There's three things that really endure, but the top, pinnacle one, is this idea of love. And so I'm pounding this into the ground today because I'm like, we've got to get this right There's so many things that I actually kind of go, like, in the margin of error that we get wrong, it's not going to be a big deal. But if we get love wrong, like the Bible's screaming at us, don't get this one wrong as much as you can. And I bring it all up because I think, sadly, we all know we haven't all been awesome at this. Just, and when I talk about this right now, I want to be clear what I'm talking about. I'm not saying you as an individual, or Redemption Church as a single local church. But boy, when I look at kind of the reputation of the kind of the conservative evangelical thing, and I know I talk about this a lot, but I think it's important because we've got to realize what we're paddling upstream against and, and what we're trying to correct on the stereotype front, right? That's important. And, and when I look at that, I, I go, would, would we say that our reputation is, man, those conservative Christians, they, can't, they, they love too much. Would you shut them up a little bit? back them down way too loving we all know that that's not necessarily our reputation and, and some of that i want to be honest i know that it is kind of quote persecution right there's just people that are against the bible and against god and against jesus and they just want to criticize and critique and pick us apart and and that comes with the territory of following jesus well that's going to happen because he promised it would happen but there's other times where they look and they go there's just not an alignment between what it is you espouse and what it is you do. Like going back to that passage in 1 Corinthians verses four through seven, right? Like we go, love, love isn't proud. But but then sometimes the outside world says, Man, you guys sound really proud morally. Like you you're better than everybody else. You got it more figured out than everybody else. You scold everybody else, right? And so you're kind of proud morally, even though then you have leaders blowing out and SBC covering up all kinds of sexual misconduct cases and all the then they start to go, like, what about you? Right? Or like, oh well, yeah, that's right, us. Love isn't demanding. But there's a lot of evangelical voices demanding our religious rights and our religious liberties, and this is a Christian nation, and demanding we get back to certain things, and and it just sounds like love is demanding more than serving. Love isn't rude, but there's a lot of people say, well, I I see the Christian pundits in in public, and they, they are rude to groups that they don't agree with. Love isn't irritable, but sometimes we're irritable about government and Hollywood and activist groups that we don't agree with, and we don't sound understanding and gracious and kind and wanting to come alongside and understand. It just sounds irritable. Love is hopeful, but sometimes we sound more fearful of economy and foreign nations and where the future's going and what the government's doing and those kinds of things. And and this is where I go, man, the world is dying to see us embody love. Now, I know right now some are going, right, Matt, but John's not talking about loving the world, loving our neighbor, loving our enemies. He's talking about loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. So what about that? Right? Here's what I know. Many of our critics kind of out there were once in here. Right? Some of our staunchest critics were once a part of our ranks and they left our ranks. Now some left as they deconstructed because they're like, we just don't like the truth, we don't want it, I'm gonna do my thing. But others, they left because they were so deeply wounded. And they're like, man, I, I had a need and instead of them coming alongside me, they just shot the sheep. The wounded ones in particular and they, they don't know how to reconcile all of that, right? In fact, I will bet that there are many of us in this room or watching online that you would say the deepest wounds you've ever had in your life didn't come from the disbelieving world, but from the believing world. A pastor, a leader, a parent, a friend that was a Christian and in the name of Christ inflicted deep wounds. That weren't rooted in love or grace They may have thought it was rooted in truth But in a way that was more deadly than helpful Right And, and from that you still deal with it Like I can tell you as a pastor uh, Man, all, all, almost all of my life wounds Come from fellow Christians I, uh, Like I was thinking about it this week I'm like how many non-Christians have I ever been wounded by And I'm like uh, Really zero Right Like I give them bandwidth I'm like okay, you know, I get that But boy and I get it, I swim in the fishbowl, maybe that's normal. But after 52 years, if, if I'm still kind of like, ah, eh, not really anybody, that, I've never felt really persecuted in a way that I felt so hated that I didn't get past that. But boy, lots of wounds in the church. Now I know I'm pushing time here, and, and forgive me, um, I'm gonna try to accelerate this, right? But I, I had somebody recently said, hey, you know, I always appreciate it when you kind of share personal stories. About this, And so this is about as personal as I, I can get with this. And it's not me directly, but it's tethered to me. And so I'm hoping you give me a little bit of grace in this. But some of you may or may not know, I have three kids. Right? So I have a 22-year-old, 24-year-old, 26-year-old. And all three are not among our church ranks anymore. So all of my kids have kind of left the church environment. right? Now, uh, two of them for sure go, we dig Jesus. But boy, the church wore us out growing up. And it's just not safe space, right? Now, one of my kids is like, I'm, I'm much more out than having consideration to be in. And it's my 22-year-old, uh, he's gay. And when you're a gay kid in a pastor's home, and that first starts to kind of come out in your life, like a 12, 13, 14, I- I'm so sad. I'm, I'm ashamed to say, even as a parent, that instead of being motivated by love, I was motivated by fear, right? Right? And, and in the fear of my motivation, it was less fearful of God. It was more fearful of my fellow Christians and how they might respond to me because I would spent many years getting responded to in all sorts of ways that were hurtful. So then I kind of put that into my kid, and instead of trying to figure out a way to really kind of nurture a disciple through a hard time, I kind of used fear as my motivator. That is my failure, right? Because now for him, he's like— Phew. And we have a good relationship. We patched up a lot of things. In those early years, I was able to say, dude, I I handled this really, really wrong and he's forgiven us for that. But I'm I'm just saying, you can have well-intended things, but it's absent of real love because you're motivated by fears and that's never gonna be a healthy way to approach it, right, so there's that one. But then my other two kids, I asked them this week and I asked them for permission to be able to share all this on Sunday because I don't ever wanna talk about my family and not get permission. And I said, can I, just walk me through this estrangement. You know, you dig Jesus, but you don't, you struggle with the church, and it's not per se just redemption church, it's just their experiences. And, and so I was talking to them, and and they said, you know, Dad, the first thing is, we spent our whole life growing up listening to people just beat you up, <laughs> right? People would say things and leave the church, or there would be things about you. In fact, my oldest was talking about this time at uh, youth group. She was probably about 14 or 15. She was a part of, like, a peer group of leaders. And, and there was a group of kids that were all going to, like, Mars Church on Sunday night to the stuff. And then they would go to Redemption on Sunday morning. And it came to this point where they're like, we want to go to, to Mars on Sunday morning and not just Sunday night. And so they had this meeting about it. My daughter's in this meeting. And they're just kind of saying, like, you know what? matt is boring he's not funny mark's awesome he's cool they're doing cool stuff matt just kind of sucks and my daughter's sitting there trying to figure out how to defend her dad against a group of her peers that are just dogpiling her dad and she finally just broke down in tears and left and nobody really kind of checked on that either and she goes dad that was just kind of the start of me saying this isn't a safe place for me Christians can be really, really mean. And she said, There was this illustration they did at youth group one time where it's like you're standing on a chair as a Christian and there's a non Christian on the ground and you're trying to pull them up into the chair, but they're going to have more leverage to pull you down. And so, kind of, the message was, your non believing friends are more dangerous than, than your believing friends. And so, you know, be careful on the chair. And she goes, I didn't understand because I, I had been so hurt by Christians, but my non Christian and other believing friends were safer for me. I, it didn't compute. Now, in telling, like, that story, and there was more to it, but it kind of gives you a sense of it, here's what I'm not asking you to do. I'm not asking you to come to me and say, is it me? Did I do it? Right? I'm not asking you to, like, DM my daughter after service today, you know. I'm not doing it to shame anybody. I'm not even doing it to try to hurt anybody's feelings or say, hey, we got to try to put the toothpaste back in the tube. But, like, both my daughters were here for Easter, and I asked them, how did it feel? And they're like, we were just on guard. This doesn't feel safe. And it's just their history, right? Now again, being a pastor's kid is different. And it's not to say that they don't hold opinions and thoughts that that even we disagree on, because there are things we certainly disagree on and everything else. It's not to say that isn't true. But their experience over the course of their life was, you know what, there was more law than love. There was more shame than grace. There was more rules than relationship. And maybe ultimately, there was in that more hypocrisy even than humility. And so for them, they're like, we love love, But we didn't always see love. In fact, sometimes we were confronted by the opposite thereof. And so I know I've failed in this realm, as I've shared. And I know there's probably some of us that go, man, maybe I failed too. But I want us to get better. And that's why I share the story, because I believe we can get better at this. I'm desperate for us to get better at this. I I think fellow believers are desperate, and certainly the world is desperate, to see real love, because I believe in Jesus there is real love. And he wants to show that through us if we submit to him. Yes, it's a hard fought practice, but it must be a practice more than it is a platitude. And I know love is risky and love is messy, but love is necessary. It just is, right? Radical, relentless, reckless, selfless love. We want to do this in our world, and we want to do it for the sake of Christ. I know I've taken a minute, but right now I just want to pray. And as I do this, I, I, again, I, I so badly don't want you to walk out of here feeling bad for the stories that I tell. But hopefully, if anything, for us to go like, oh man, I'm inspired to, to pick up pieces and move forward and do awesome at this. Because it's so, so, so necessary. So let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I, I come before you more hope-filled than heart-aching. And I, I don't reflect on these stories out of frustration or even hurt personally at this point, but rather as an illustrative point, like almost the stories of the Bible to go, oh, that's where maybe that could have been better, and how how can we move forward and do it better? And so I pray that that is our heart today. In fact, I think about the very next words that John would say in this letter, which is, hey, if our conscience condemns us, you're bigger than our conscience, and you know all things. I, I, I pray that we don't feel condemned as much as we feel mobilized and moved. And so Jesus, help us to love well. Help us to love you well. Help us to love fellow believers well. Help us to love our world well because, as I said, I think that changes the world. And so I thank you. I praise you. We need you. And we ask that we surrender to your love to flow through us because you are the one that lives in us. We thank you in your good name. Amen.